There is a lot to love about Saturdays. Here are a few of my recent favorite Saturday things. Taking my dog for long walks around my neighborhood, socially distant workout classes, watching old episodes of Top Chef with Matt, drinking hot chocolate while I work on homework for grad school, and, of course, hunkering down for long reading sessions. In 1996, E.L. Koningsberg introduced us to a group of kids who loved Saturdays for their own reasons. In The View from Saturday, Noah, Ethan, Nadia, and Julian are selected by their teacher, Mrs. Alinsky, for the sixth grade academic bowl team that they eventually call the Souls. While it's unclear why they were chosen for the team, they do ultimately come together, and the Saturday tea parties that Julian hosts at his home are a major factor. Spoiler alert, the team racks up some serious victories, and E.L. Koningsberg won a Newbery Medal for the book. As a reminder, this means that the American Library Association thought it was the single best book written for children that year. On episode 116, my guests and I take a deep dive into The View from Saturday. We talk about its unique format and the way it influenced my reading and writing life as an adult. We talk about the exquisite writing. We talk about how refreshing it is to read about kids who are learning how to be kind and being celebrated for small victories. We compare notes on which of the four core characters we most resonated with. We also talk about the things we didn't love so much, specifically the way certain characters are othered and their current use of a noose as a symbol of the academic bowl team's victory. We recognize the fact that these elements would make it much more difficult for children of color to enjoy The View from Saturday. My guest on today's episode is Kate Stamen London. Kate is a novelist, screenwriter, and political strategist. She served as a lead digital writer for Hillary Rodham Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and has written for notable figures ranging from President Obama and Malala Yousafzai to Anna Wintour and Cher. When not writing or traveling, Kate can be found obsessively ranking Taylor Swift songs, laughing loudly with friends over really good bottles of wine, and, of course, watching reality TV. She lives in Los Angeles, and you probably have seen her debut novel, One to Watch, all over Bookstagram and beyond lately. I am so grateful to Kate for chatting with me for today's episode. If you're not already, you can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at underscore KSL. Learn more about Kate's work at www.katestamenlondon.com. You can learn more about all things SSR at www.ssrpodcast.com and by following along on social media. As far as social media platforms are concerned, Instagram is definitely my best subject. You can find me there at SSRPod, but I'm also active on Twitter and Facebook. Find SSR on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Our smaller Facebook group is a little more chatty, and you can find that one by searching The SSR Podcast Community. That's your ideal destination if you want to talk more about the books we cover on the show and or read along with the podcast. Every week, I share a month's worth of episode previews in that group, so you can really know what's coming up and read ahead if that's your jam. If your jam is helping me spread the word about SSR, here's one very important way to do it. With a five-star rating or review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews give me a chance to learn more about what you think of the podcast, but they also help more people find it. It all comes down to Apple's fancy algorithm. More ratings and reviews means that SSR gets a bump in the iTunes rankings, which means that more book-loving podcast listeners can discover it. I am all about growing our SSR community, so please take a moment to leave a rating or review if you haven't already. Thank you so much. Calling all SSR superfans, if you want to take a more active role in the growth of SSR, you should really check out our Patreon page. With Patreon, you can contribute a few dollars every month to the production of the podcast in exchange for some super cool rewards. I produce, host, edit, and promote SSR all on my own, and it takes a lot of hours, so your support through Patreon means a lot. It also allows me to continue making improvements to the show. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar per month. Go to www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. Big shout out to all of the SSR patrons listening to this episode. I appreciate you. One last thing before we get into the episode. Have you checked out Libra FM yet? If you're into audiobooks and you haven't, you are seriously missing out. Libro.fm gives you the chance to support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations when you buy audiobooks. The audiobooks are exactly the same as the ones you would purchase from the big guys, and they're the same price too. Plus, SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, 
and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. As the weather starts to get colder, I know you're looking for more ways to cozy up your home. Why not snuggle up with your favorite blanket, some hot chocolate, and a new audiobook from FM playing? It sounds very relaxing to me. Okay, so I actually have one more last thing before we get into this conversation about The View from Saturday. Listeners, please make sure you are registered to vote. We are just a few weeks away from the election, and making sure your voice is heard has never been more important. Double check, triple check, quadruple check your registration status, then make sure you have a plan to vote on or before November 3rd. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kate. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Today we are talking about a book that I am learning with every Instagram post means so much more than I ever could have imagined to so many more people than I could have imagined. <laughs> the View from Saturday by E.L. Koningsberg. I know that I loved this book. I think I had a sense that it was like beloved by teachers and librarians and critics, but it was really like, of course, posting it on Instagram and getting responses from people that really drove home what this book really means to the world. Could you tell me a little bit more about any personal experience that you had with it growing up and why you wanted to revisit it for this podcast? So I actually have never read this book until this week. I'm just like a hair too old. It came out in 1996, so I was 13 then, so I was already reading YA and and up 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 a level from middle grade, but from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler, of course, is one of my all-time favorite books and was actually quite influential in my book, One to Watch. I reference it explicitly. There's a date that takes place in an empty museum in a scene which is really close to my heart. So when this was on the list of one of the books that you wanted to revisit, I just knew that E.L. Koningsberg is one of my favorite authors. And I thought, what a treat to be able to read something of hers I'd never read before. She's such a special author. We came back to from the mixed up files for, I believe, episode like six or seven of the podcasts, so it's it's really been part of the fabric of the show for a very long time. Now that we're on episode, I don't know, by the time this one drops, it'll be like 120 almost. So, Oh my gosh. So there's been a, a long lead time waiting to do another one of her books, but I'm so happy we are here. This book, as you mentioned, was published in 1996. It won the Newbery Medal, not a Newbery Honor. It won the medal in 1997, so it's a pretty big deal, everybody. That means it was like the best book for kids out there in 1996. I remember reading it, I want to say when I was maybe nine or ten, so a couple of years Mm -hmm. after it came out. I remember that my mom's friend recommended it to me, and I remember loving it. And it's interesting because it's one of those books, and I don't know if you have this experience with any of the books that you read and enjoyed when you were a kid, but I've always known that I loved it, but I remembered absolutely nothing about it. I, I feel like it flew out of my brain as soon as I finished it. And yet for all of these years, I've been aware of it as this like very formative, important book for me as a reader and as a writer. Mm. And coming back to it, it was so interesting to see some of the elements of the book that mirror exactly the kinds of adult books that I like to read and that mirror some of the things that I have tried to do with my own writing over the years. I just I think it's fascinating sometimes to step back when we look at these books from our childhood or, or from these periods of time and think about like how they not only just entertained us, but how they really impacted how we communicate. Definitely. Um, One of my best friends is the author, Morgan Matson, who's a young adult novelist. And she always talks about, we both love Nora Ephron, who's 
been, you know, just a huge influence on both of us. And we always talk about the passage in You've Got Mail, where Meg Ryan's character, Kathleen Kelly, talks about how the reading that you do as a child shapes you in a way that no other reading does in the rest of your life. And I think that that's so true. And I'm a huge rereader. So most of the books that I read as a kid and really loved, I've read, you know, 10 or 20 times by now. But it's such a treat to sort of, you know, in in books for grownups, for, for lack of a better word, so much of it is about reckoning with our disappointments with the world and and sort of understanding those disappointments, which I think is particularly resonant for a lot of us here in the year of our Lord 2020. But to sort of revisit a book for children that's about becoming a better person and being hopeful and and finding what's meaningful about life. I found it such a joyful experience and really just a gift. I think that captures it really well. But it also wasn't saccharine, which I really appreciated no. because there's such a range of, of tones in that sort of book. I mean, we, we read books on the podcast all the time that are meant to have that sort of hopeful, optimistic aftertaste to them, which is obviously all well-intentioned. And these are the kinds of books that I think are really important for kids, especially to read. But sometimes they leave this like, kind of taste in my mouth where I'm like, that feels like I ate a lot of candy. And that's great for a kid. But as an adult, I have a lot of questions about it. And it was really fascinating and and lovely to read a book that just struck this perfect balance of being hopeful and optimistic, but also grounded. And it felt very balanced, I think, is, is the best word for it. And I started my MFA last week as I was reading this book. And Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. The journey has just started. Um, and what we're talking about in my craft class is like, you know, the very basics of sentence structure. And I found that this was like the perfect book to read while I was starting all of this. And it was so funny because we were in my like Zoom class, of course, and people are starting to offer examples of things they've read that they think are great pieces of craft. And I was kind of having to sit on my hands because I like haven't revealed myself yet as this like kids book podcaster. And I'm kind of trying to keep it under wraps. But I really wanted to be like, oh, how about the view from Saturday? Because it really is such a great example. I mean, the, the way that she builds these sentences, they're so simple and so clear crisp like that was the word that kept coming to my head it just felt like this like crisp cool drink of water every time I opened the book because just the way she writes is so beautiful I I I was obsessed with it and I think not only because I'm taking this class well I think first of all we needn't pretend right like E.L. Koningsberg in terms of her craft is is a sharper and better writer than almost anyone writing for adults right now right yes. so like there's no there's no need to to sort of put a yeah I <laughs> put mean a pillow on it right. or, or saying oh because it's for children or yeah. whatever like no this is superlative writing. yeah it is I, I mean to be clear no shame in my game or certainly no shame in E.L. Koningsberg's game I just wasn't ready to like explain why I had been reading it Someday I'll reveal myself and I'll I'll tell them that they all have to read this book as an example of craft. Yeah. So I think, oh God, there's so much I want to say about this book, but but in terms of the writing is really crisp, but the, the word that really stuck out to me is that it's all very intentional, which is, I think, partly, you know, a facet of, of a really excellent writer at work, but also... Um, uh, my training is in screenwriting. I did my MFA in screenwriting um, here in Los Angeles, where I live. And ensemble stories are such a particular kind of story. Um, and screenwriting in general, I think, I don't find that it maps to novel writing sort of one-to-one -one perfectly, but it does more so with kids' books because you have less real estate, right? And then when you are telling an ensemble story and you have a lot of different characters, and I think about my favorite ensemble films like Mystic Pizza or The Big chill, these kind of like really beautiful stories that give you a little vignette of a character and you have very little room to understand a lot about a person. So as a writer, that's a really particular set of challenges that you're giving yourself when you're doing that, um, as opposed to my first novel had a ton of characters in it, but one very central protagonist. So I really had 400 plus pages to give you her journey, her arc, lots of room there, right? But in this book, we have 160 pages and really five characters that have full arcs. That's not easy to do. Yeah. So I think in all of her sentences, like not only are they excellent, beautifully written sentences, but she's thinking about where to point the camera 
specifically for each character to give you that full feeling that isn't saccharine, it's not sugary, that genuine earned feeling of growth for each of them with such little space. It, it's like such a phenomenal achievement and no wonder it won the Newbery Medal. So I'm curious with your screenwriting background, when you read a book that has not been adapted, are you reading it and like thinking about how it would be scripted and adapted? I'm just curious like how that kind of training changes the way that you take things in no you know I have I have friends who are feature writers who do a lot of adaptation and that's very much the way that their brains work when I read books I I tend to read for pleasure um and it's sort of the feeling when you pick up the first page and you discover whether you're in the presence of a writer you can trust or not by which I don't mean like an unreliable narrator or anything like that I mean a writer who's like knows what the hell they're doing and and you can just sort of relax and say great I'm not gonna have to do work I'm not gonna have to be frustrated I'm just gonna let you take me on the journey and and really discover what you've laid out for me so that's really the mental space I tend to be in um um, when I'm reading, I find it as opposed to when I'm when I'm watching a movie or a TV show. I am often I'm such a pain in the ass. I'll be like, "Will you pause it?" And they're like, "Why do you have to go to the bathroom?" I'm like, "No, I, I don't understand." Like, I was I was just watching um, Mulan, the new one, with a, a friend the other night, which I'll I'll mention again in reference to this book because it brought up something that I thought was really interesting. But I paused and I was like, "Is this a late midpoint or an early end of Act Two? <laughs> Doesn't structurally make any sense. We're at one hour and six minutes into this movie. This scene should." be happening now and that's why it's not landing emotionally right and so and like in a movie there are there are stricter rules that you can kind of measure against in that way but in books you you know it's it's that's that's what I find fun about books is there's a lot more freedom in them I do feel like this needs to be adapted like I really want to see it it would be really cool as like a limited series or no I do feel like it will ruin it I can see you're feeling a little reluctant to even go down this road tell me why so I think about things like so one of the characters Nadia who was one of my favorite characters in the book, you learn a little bit about her father and nothing about her mother. And her mother was a really interesting character to me, right? Of someone who, a woman who's starting over and she's moving to a town that she's never been to in upstate New York where her in-laws used to live, but where she's never been. And I'm like, that's a fascinating character. But we don't have time even to get to her. And, and in, in an adaptation, I think there would be so much temptation to sort of build out the world of this book. And I think that would be really interesting, right? There are a lot of cool stories you could tell if you built out the world in that way. And I think what's so beautiful about this book is is how much it says with how little. And I and I sort of, I would be worried about a temptation to, to pile things onto it and to try and make it more than it is, which would end up making it less than it is. It would turn it into something different. Yeah. I also, I just think ensemble stories are very, very hard yeah. to get right in, in any medium. And so when one has been gotten so particularly correct, I, I hesitate to say, let's try it again. <laughs> I also think the audience for it would be different because in a lot of the essays that I was reading reflecting on this book, what a lot of people have to say is that it's written with such simplicity. Kid readers can understand it. As long as you, know, you sort of have the ability to read at this level, you can take in what going on at the very sort of superficial level with these kids and and they're going to school and they're being on this academic bowl team it's very clear to them we talked about her crisp writing but as you read it when you get older there are all these other levels operating as you mentioned for example Nadia's mom who we as adults can sort of read between the lines and realize that she's this very complex woman who is starting over and going on this personal evolution that I as like a grown woman like want to know more about because that's really interesting to me but once you build that out, then it's not a story for kids anymore. And you still have all these 11-year-olds like going to the middle school academic bowl. So I can see how that would get a little bit tricky. But I don't know. I just I want more from this book. I want more of these characters. So who knows? No, maybe they're someday. great. And I do. I think, too, that you can kind of get away with precocious kids in books in a way that's a little bit harder on screen, that it feels a little bit pat or overwritten when you see kid actors delivering these complicated lines, whereas in a book that you can kind of just believe these precocious characters in a way that feels honest um, and delightful. 
in a different way. But I think what you were saying ties back to to the observation I had. I was really frustrated watching Mulan because I found it all to be so overly exposited and so oversimplified. And I was like, whoever was in charge of, I don't know if it was the screenwriters themselves or the executives overseeing the producers, it's hard to, it's hard to know who's responsible for what. But whoever was in charge of this process didn't trust kids and didn't think that kids were smart enough to understand, you know, what's happening when you move things into subtext and add humor and when you make it more interesting and more realistic in terms of how people are actually talking to one another. And then I picked up this book and I was like, this is a book that trusts kids. This is a book that says it can be complicated. It can be difficult because what this author understands is that children are such shrewd observers of the world because they have to be because they're not allowed to participate in every aspect of the world. And so when you're not allowed to participate, you have to observe. And particularly if you come from a complicated family situation, as a lot of the kids in this book do, you have to doubly observe because there are stakes if you don't observe and behave, like calibrate your behavior correctly to what's going on in your family situation. That can work out not so great for you. So I just picking this up. I, I mean, I love children's books. I love writing child characters. I hope one day to write a children's book. And I, it just, it like made my heart sore to be like, this is an author who respects kids. And I just, I love that. I think that's a great way to describe her. And I also think that's a great way to transition into the structure of this book, because I think Mm -hmm. even the structure alone indicates the author's level of respect for her young readers, because I think a lot of authors would think that a kid might not be able to get it, you know? And I do think that a structure like this has, it's become a little bit more common, but a lot of people who reached out to me on Instagram when they saw that I was reading it, they were like, this was the first time I ever read a book with a framing device. And it was the first time Mm -hmm. that I started to understand what that meant. For a lot of people, I think it was the first book that they read that had this many different perspectives that switched back and forth between first person and third person. And this was an author that was like, no, these kids can handle it. Like they'll figure it out. And I remember reading it when I was little and knowing that it was different, but I wasn't questioning it because I was like, oh, like I can figure this out. When you're a kid who maybe just wants to appear that they know everything like I was, I just didn't ask adults questions about what all of this meant. And I just figured it out. And the story reads beautifully, even if you're not quite sure how the device works. So I think that even at sort of the structural level, E.L. Koningsberg gives her readers a lot of credit, which is really refreshing, especially in 1996, when I do think that the worlds of kidlet, certainly YA, even middle grade was still like a growing category. So I think it says a lot about her and the way that she perceives kids, the way that she put this together. This was after she had already written Mrs. Bowsley, Frank Weiler, right? So I think this too speaks to an author who has the level of success where you have the freedom to kind of, you know, she's not coming in with her debut saying, I'm going to do this complicated structure and switching between perspectives of different characters and narrative styles and whatever. I think that might be a harder sell to an editor. This is an author who's proven, I know what the hell I'm doing. And then she, she sort of, she gets to do something like this, which is wonderful. We all should. There's a confidence to it. Yes the way that it's written. So the framing structure is this. We open with the teacher, Mrs. Eva Marie Alinsky. And I was thinking about the fact that it probably is really cool for kids to read a book written from the perspective of a teacher. Like that doesn't happen very often. So that alone, I would think might be really intriguing to kids, especially if they're teacher's pets the way that I was. They just want to know like what's going on in teacher's brain. And she has four kids that are on her academic bowl team that she coaches. And The running thread throughout the book is that she doesn't really know why she put these four kids together. All of the other teachers that are coaching teams in this competition have a very clear answer for how their teams came together. Maybe they had sort of auditions or maybe there was a quiz or there was some sort of like very specific way that their teams were assembled. And Mrs. Alinsky has no idea. She's kind of like trying to play with different answers throughout the book. But at the same time, the team is like kicking ass. So they keep winning and they keep winning and people keep asking her why she made these decisions to bring these kids together and she still can't explain it. And so as we go throughout the book, we as readers are kind of collecting clues about each of the kids trying to figure out how they all come together in the end, whether they are friends, because we're not sure at the beginning if they even like each other, if they even know each other. And then we're also trying to figure out what the teacher saw in each of them that made them the right fit for this team. So there are four 
kids. There's Noah, Nadia, Ethan, and Julian. They're our main characters. Each charming, each confused, each figuring it out in their own way. Was there one character in particular that resonated especially with you? Oh, I mean, I was a little bit of a Noah when I was a kid. And so to sort of see a kid who is that obviously annoying to everyone around him also be written in a way that was charming and funny and and lovable. And he learns to, to sort of have a little bit of humility during the course of the book, uh, which was certainly a lesson. And that that I needed as a child and perhaps still do um, on a somewhat ongoing basis. I really, I loved Noah. I definitely resonated with Nadia a lot because she's going through this big transition. Her parents have gotten divorced. She's learning how to manage them living in two places. She's talking about commuting, which is such a grown-up word that broke my heart that she's like, I guess nobody cares that I have to commute back and forth. And having moved a few times when I was growing up, having gone through a divorce when I was growing up, and even years after the divorce, like sort of being in this ongoing process of figuring out how I related to each family. I don't know. I, I just really felt so much of her. I felt so much of her soul and I felt so much of her experience. And I have about a million highlights in her chapter. I felt like Yale Koningsberg expressed in very direct, clear prose many of the things that I am still trying to sort out emotionally about my family and my childhood to this day. Like, I still can't figure out how to explain it. My therapist can't figure out how to explain it. <laughs> but Yale Codingsburg did, and that meant a lot to me even now. That's so fun because I was, I was a child of divorce, too, and I lived with my mom in New Jersey and spent weekends with my dad in New York City. So I literally was commuting, you know, they would put a backpack on me and, and stick me on the bus to the Port Authority. And then I would take the subway up to my dad's house when I was, you know, nine, 10 years old, which wasn't perhaps the wisest parenting choice they could have made. <laughs> but it did make me feel very independent and grown up. And I did, I had to do the flights by myself with the unaccompanied minors and all of that. And so it was, and it's funny, I reading this, I didn't even think about it, but yeah, it totally reflects that experience. Yeah. And I guess maybe it's because she's sort of at the beginning of that journey so she's able to really articulate what the changes feel like in real time and I, I was younger than than she is in the book when my parents got divorced so I really had no idea what was going on and I think I just was sort of on this like this time lag as I grew up trying to figure it all out over time but I feel like she just she got it like she was very in touch with what was going on she has a lot of emotional maturity and I think that that's one of the things that all four of these kids have in common is, is life experience and jumping to the end of the book Julian's dad sort of helps Mrs. Alinsky sort through maybe some of the reasons why all of this happened the way that it did and his words to her or that all four of the souls and the souls is, is what the group comes to be called he says all four of the souls are returning from a journey which to me felt like this life experience like they they have come back to this new school year after their various summer adventures with a new level of life experience maybe a little bit more emotional intelligence just having like seen things that their classmates haven't. Yeah, and I mean the the name of the town where they live is is perhaps unsubtly named Epiphany, New York. Um, and you know there are a lot of sort of religious allegorical things that are woven throughout the text here. But the idea that all of these kids and their teacher have an epiphany. And it was actually so funny reading this book. Uh, my book is called One to Watch, and the theme of it is seeing and being seen. And that is, of course, also the theme of this book, which is called The View from Saturday, because authors don't make it that difficult for you to find themes. And we put words about seeing in the titles <laughs> of our books when that's what it's about. But thinking about, just as you say, opening from the point of view of a teacher, and we're also curious. How, how do our teachers see us? I mean, our particular sort of kid who's interested in our teacher's opinions of us, which it sounds like both you and I were and continue to be. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yep. But also, there's so much about Noah's chapters, all about his observations of Century Village, where his grandparents lives, which then sets us up for Nadia's chapter of what sort of happens in, in Century Village. And then when we meet Ethan, we understand the way that he talks about the way that he's seeing Nadia. And Nadia doesn't know that he's seeing her in this particular way. And then Julian's dad, of course, he's tying it all together at the end when he's talking. But it's all, all of their epiphanies come from seeing each other, which is 
such a such a beautiful lesson for you know a book that's very much about facts and introversion and not fitting in and feeling alone and not wanting to be seen but understanding that that connection and being seen and seeing other people uh, is is the whole epiphany of what life is. Yeah, they're seen at this very intimate level by each other and then they also have this opportunity to be seen in this more public way as part of this team. And I loved that this academic bowl championship was cool. Like, the fact that there were kids lining the halls, cheering them on. To be fair, they were a group of sixth graders that had beat out the seventh and eighth graders and were going on to the state championship as the only sixth graders there. But the fact that, like, all the big kids were supporting them, like, I'm just going to say that would not have happened at my school. Um, No, there is. There's the one line where it was like the sixth graders had beat the seventh graders. And then so the sixth graders are now going to go up against the eighth graders and the seventh graders choose to root for the sixth graders. And I was like, there's absolutely no way. And now, like if the seventh graders have been embarrassed by the sixth graders, they're going to root for the eighth graders to to vanquish their foes. Right. Right. Yeah. I would say that the sort of ending chapters about the academic bowl and the kids sort of ride to the championship read to me a little bit as wish fulfillment, which is like, I think it's okay to to give that to kids, but it, to me, was the least compelling part of the book because the rest of the book was so firmly rooted in reality and so meaningfully rooted there that then to sort of move into a space of like, well, now we're in pretend chapter book land. I found that less compelling. Yeah, I don't know that the story would have been any less effective had their victory been a little bit quieter. In fact, I think it might have been more effective because the fact that it became so public introduced probably the only element of the book that I really didn't like, which was this whole conversation about nooses. And I'm now on a full tangent, but it's fine because this needs to be discussed. There's a lot of trash talking happening among the teachers as this competition rolls on. And at one point, the principal of one of the opposing schools says to Mrs. Alinsky, I told our coach that she could expect to be hung if she lets your sixth grade grunges beat us out. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, would not fly in 2020. Not interested in it. Not a fan of it. Makes me super uncomfortable. Makes me pretty angry. Makes me upset for kids that would be triggered reading this book. Thought that it would maybe be like one mention that we could move on from. But the noose becomes kind of this like mascot for the souls. Um, Mrs. Alinsky plays into it by saying back to the principal, well then, much as I respect your coach, I recommend that you start buying rope. By the way, Mr. Ledoux, in our grunge neighborhood, we say hanged, not hung. Check it out. And then one of the students puts a noose over her car antenna after they win. The Century Village retirement community in Florida raises money for these kids to have buses to go to the championship by selling t-shirts with a noose design on them. Just not appropriate at any level and very triggering, I would imagine, for a lot of people. So I sort of feel like the fact that the competition became such a high-profile community effort brought in these other forces that took away like the sweetness of it. So as happy as I was for our four core characters that I feel like they, they were recognized by their classmates and and the older students who maybe would have like treated them like garbage otherwise I didn't need all of these other factors and I think in some ways it maybe took away from the parts of the book that I really liked yeah and I would have to say with the noose thing in particular to me and you know part of this is 2020 talking but 1996 is not that different from 2020 nooses are so indelibly tied to the history of lynching in this country and the idea kids author would use a symbol like that like I I feel like that would ruin the book for young black readers and I don't think that that's you know an appropriate choice to have made and I would have hoped that her editor even at the time would say hey this isn't okay for kids I mean let alone you know kids who maybe have experience with suicide or other things in their own lives and their own families when we have something like that that is such a huge cultural dark mark on the history of this country to sort of have it woven in as something like a joke so there was that piece of it But also I felt that that sort of subplot, in addition to, okay, say she had chosen some other symbol, say it was a knife instead of a noose or whatever, it sort of, to me, wove into a lesson that felt counter to the larger lessons of the book. And this feeling of like winning is what matters and not only winning, but winning in a way that makes the people who you beat feel bad, Mm. which is like, 
I don't know. I don't think that matters that much. And that doesn't to me track with the morality of the book and the book saying this really beautiful lesson that what matters is sort of finding people who see you and love you as you are, uh, which one assumes you should be able to find people who see you and love you as you are, whether or not you win an academic bowl contest or any other kind of contest. So I really, that sort of, and that was part of why those last chapters that felt about the winning I just, I didn't connect to it in the same way that I did these really, really beautiful character studies of these four outcast kids coming together. Right, because the first 75% of the book is set up as these distinct chapters, each one focusing on an adventure that one of these kids has had, and each one of those sections is set up with a sort of flash-forward scene from the academic bowl where the teams are being asked a question that only this particular kid can answer. Um, So, for example, Nadia, who spent the summer with her grandparents helping to conserve sea turtles, is asked a question about oceans. So it's a very natural then transition into her story, which brings us to Florida, and through that whole sort of family dialogue that we just spoke about and how she's kind of like finding her place in, in the family. So I liked the fact that they, they had a moment of, like, small spotlight where they got to share their knowledge because I do think for an introverted kid, like, sometimes that's the best feeling or and maybe this is just me projecting, but it's like, oh, I know something. Like, I know this. And that, as a kid, is such a satisfying feeling, I think, especially in a world where adults are always telling you that, like, you don't know anything and you're always being made to feel as if everybody's just, like, imposing their beliefs and knowledge on you. It's really cool to be able to, to like, rise to that occasion. And I felt that for each of those kids. So that was the kind of, like, public visibility or public seeing that I liked for them. Once it got to be, like, a a production, I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. There was a particular moment, I will say, in one of the final chapters where Julian has, he's asked a question about acronyms and words that began as acronyms and then become adopted um, into just vernacular and radar is the example that they give and they ask can you name two others and sonar was the one that I thought of but Julian says posh and tip and I didn't know that either of those words were acronyms and as a writer I was so delighted to learn the history of them and there's this moment where the sort of head judge of the whole thing this you know high high muckety muck says you know tip we do not accept and Julian says with due respect sir you're wrong like you need more information I know that I'm right here and that was the kind of a moment that I think was so earned and so it's a book that cares a lot about courtesy as a value and and respect and kindness and it was done in such a courteous way but saying you know nevertheless we can be courteous about it but just because someone holds a position of authority or because they're older than us or because they say that we're wrong doesn't mean that any of those things are true and I think that's a great lesson to teach kids so there are moments like that where I was like yeah like I love this as opposed to the moments that were like more about winning for the sake of winning which felt less on the mark on the point I really like that moment too and it made me hopeful that there may be a sort of shift happening in like the culture of parenting and I, and I don't have kids so I don't know but and maybe maybe you share this experience I remember when I was growing up in the 90s it was very much like a golden rule like you don't correct adults like you just don't Maybe that was my house. Maybe it was everyone. I do think it was perhaps more common then than it is now. My sense from just like observing the world is that there is a little bit more openness now for kids to like courteously and kindly maybe challenge something that they just like know to be factually inaccurate. But when I was growing up, like that really wasn't a thing, especially in front of other people. Like I remember my parents not being thrilled at all if I would counter something that they said when we were at a party or with other adults and in in hindsight like I can see why maybe that like wasn't a great look for them but I was just a very precocious kid and I was a know-it-all still am and I was just communicating and I really liked that Julian did that in this book and that it ended up being a small earned victory as you said and I I hope that it gave kids in the 90s and, and ever since then some hope that like there are moments when adults will listen to you And maybe there will come a time when this won't be the norm and and it will be comfortable for kids to respectfully ask questions of adults. Mm -hmm. I always enjoy in the books we read for the podcast finding moments where adults are fallible because I think when you're a kid, all too often you're made to believe that they're not and what they say and what they do and what they think is always correct. And it's really refreshing when children's book authors really sort of tell it straight to kids and say, look, like we don't always get it right. And it's okay for you to 
ask us questions or to recognize that sometimes we're scared or we're wrong or we're confused. Like I, I just am always very happy to see those honest moments through my now adult eyes. Yeah, I just thought uh, as you were talking, I was like, Scuba, Scuba is another actor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a vernacular. I'm still, I'm trying to get the questions right on a quiz that isn't real from that I'm not taking. I'm going to quiz um, you, Kate. I'm going to quiz you. Oh my God. Oh, it's the highlight of my week. Easily. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I grew up in uh, a very different kind of a household, uh, which perhaps a little more chaotic, uh, okay. where I was an only child of a single mom. So I was really treated like a small adult from the time that I was very little and behaved that way. And I will say my teachers did not love it for the most. <laughs> They're like, okay, this but is I- a different way of doing things. <laughs> But I do think that in, I think that it's a sort of upbringing and lesson that like in my profession, you know, I have a whole background in in politics as well as in writing. And I think the notion that we shouldn't just accept what people say, and we should make sure that what is being said to us tracks with our own knowledge and experience is something that our country would be in a lot better shape if more people were doing on a regular basis. Um, And I think it's interesting, too, to see that lesson specifically woven into a book that has a lot of, a lot to say about religion because I, I I think that a lot of us think of religion as you know a, a structure that drills into kids the idea of like you will accept X Y and Z is true and never ask questions um, I'm Jewish um, and so Judaism is very much about uh, to be faithful is to ask questions. And the reason Abraham was the first Jew instead of Noah, you know, Noah was chosen to be on the ark and save the whole world, but he wasn't chosen as the first Jew because he accepted God's word as gospel and never asked questions, whereas Abraham did. So for me, being Jewish, reading this book and and thinking about religion and the idea of questions and standing up for yourself, I really, I don't know if E.L. Koningsberg is is Jewish also, but it really, it resonated with me. Outside of his questioning the... I think it was a superintendent of schools, whoever he questioned. What did you think of the portrayal of Julian? Because as soon as we got the description of his father, who was wearing a turban, um, Mm -hmm. my ears perked up. And I was like, oh, it's 1996. How is this going to go? And I had just had this conversation recently with a friend who's going to grad school to become a school counselor. And I guess she had been talking with one of her classmates about the way that children from other countries are depicted in pop culture directed at American kids. And she asked me if I was aware of any books, because she knows that this is a thing that I do. She was asking if I'm aware of any books that portray that. And it was funny because up until that point, I, I couldn't think of any. And then I started reading this book and I was like, you should, re- you should read The View from Saturday because Julian is very much the other in this book in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, not just in the way he looks and the way he dresses. He's different than everyone in the way he speaks. The author makes a point to note that he like hugs his dad goodbye and not even first and second graders do that. Like he just is very much a different kind of kid than Ethan is. And Ethan is the mm-hmm. character through which we experience Julian for the first time. What did you think about the way that the author portrayed this otherness and Julian and Julian's father all the way back in 1996 before we were really having these kinds of conversations? Although, you know, I remember... You know, 1996 was the year I was bat mitzvahed. Noah was my parsha, right? And I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey, which is a phenomenally uh, liberal and diverse town, right? So I very much grew up hearing and asking these questions. So it's not that no one was, ha- you know, I think they, they weren't quite as widespread as the conversations are now, but the conversations were happening. I did, I had several problems with the way that Julian was portrayed in the book. The first was that there was a version of sort of um, the magical Negro mm-hmm. trope in him, which is, you know, a darker skinned character who comes and provides sort of magic or, or knowledge that help the white characters reach where they're going, which is, you know, in the case of Julian, he literally was studying to be a magician because he had known a magician on the cruise ship. And both he and his father, Mrs. Alinsky, once refers to his father as a genie, right? So there's all this sort of magical language attached to them. So there's kind of that piece where, like, these dark-skinned foreigners come and they're 
job is to not experience growth themselves, but help white characters experience growth. So that was my first problem. I also took issue, and this one resonated in particular because, um, you know, we just lost Chadwick Boseman as we're recording this um, just about a week ago. And one of the things that I read about him that really resonated with me was how he fought for the character of T'Challa in Black Panther to have um, a native accent rather than a British accent, that the studio had wanted him to have a British accent, that he was educated, you know, in Britain, and that Chadwick Boseman's argument was that that was a way of perpetuating colonialism and saying that having a British education is somehow better than having a native Wakandan education when the whole premise of the film is that Wakanda is the most advanced nation in the world. It's the most advanced nation in the world, but you're going to send your kid to England to go to school? What kind of sense does that make? And so the character of Julian being the child of an, an Indian immigrant, but having a British accent instead of having an Indian accent, I found, you know, there was a lot about that character that was very much created for consumption by white readers, which, you know, that's tough. Yeah, I think that the character of Julian's father... I really did not like the way that was handled. Um, You mentioned that Julian himself is portrayed in this mystical sense, this mystical other, this variation of the magical Negro trope. And his father, I felt, was was that times 20. In the end, he's driving with Mrs. Alinsky after these competitions are taking place. And he asks her, like everybody else seems to be asking her, like, why did all these kids come together? And of course, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Julian's father who comes in with the wisdom. He says, kindness. Yes, Mrs. Alinsky. Noah, Nadia, and Ethan found kindness in others and learned how to look for it in themselves. Can you know excellence if you've never seen it? Can you know good if you have seen only bad? Julian knows, perhaps even more than the others, about kindness. We have, my son and I, been most fortunate. We have found much kindness when we journeyed on the ship. When sixth grade started, my son found malice, spite and malice. Mean things were done to him. Julian has told me many stories, many stories. He talks about the journeys that the characters are on. And yes, granted, it's clear that they have come with sort of a different way of speaking. They have a more formal way of communicating. But this is just this is just not how any of the other characters are talking. And it puts this undue pressure on him to like come in with the answers at the end of the book and to, as you said, like educate Mrs. Zelensky and help her have her epiphany at the end of the book. And it just really, it really bothered me. I felt like he didn't have any sort of just like authentic grounded moments. Every time we Mm -hmm. saw him, it was a moment of like clarity or like there was a sense of like, oh, he's going to come and he's going to turn this old house into a and b that will bring people to the town. And I just, I wanted him to just be like a dad, a dad that is lo- that had lost his wife and was mourning. Like we didn't have any sense that he was experiencing any emotion that seemed to like match with what he had gone through. I don't know if that makes mm. any sense, but like I would have loved to see, I would have loved to see a little bit of like authentic grief maybe coming from him to make it seem like he was a more well-rounded character that wasn't just there to hit people with really beautiful wisdom. I don't know. I didn't love it. Yeah. And I think, um, (laughs) you know, I'm, I'm working on a project right now where there's a Senator who solves a story problem late in the project. And I keep calling her Senator ex machina because as a reminder of myself to, to like, make sure that she's planted and grounded throughout the story. And she's not just a deus ex machina sort of coming in and solving a story problem at the last minute. And I think Julian's dad is a little bit of a Mr. Ex machina coming in and, and sort of providing all this information that we've been told over and over again throughout the book, which is, you know, excellent writing to sort of say this information is coming, this information is coming. Pay attention, this information is coming. And then the fact that this dad, who, as you say, has this whole complicated inner life that's happening, is sort of reduced to a delivery system for the information that we've been told is coming. Yeah, that was a little bit frustrating. And I'm also personally bummed out because I sort of, I thought that Mr. Singh and Mrs. Olinsky were going to fall in love. And I was like, I was like, I don't, I don't want this. I want, I want the other thing. I want them to find connection and, and be happy. <laughs> I totally agree. They had some serious chemistry going on in those first few moments in the car before 
we got into like the really heavy conversation and I was like I was so there for it I really wanted them to get together I thought that Mrs. Alinsky would be a great stepmom for Julian I felt like they could have such a happy family she deserved it she was grieving she clearly was having feelings watching this family come together and she wanted to be part of it I wanted it for everybody but instead we had all this pressure on Julian's dad to just like explain everything to her and that wasn't fair and I also did not love that like Julian went through hell at school he was bullied in the meanest ways I mean it it was sort of the most stereotypical version of what happens when a new kid who looks different than everybody else comes to town it's what you've seen in every movie about that and nobody stood up for him really like it, there was this this interesting and I, I do think sadly like this very authentic element of his relationship with Ethan where they were like friends but not school friends like I do think that that is a very real thing that happened to probably a lot of us when we were in school where Ethan and Julian were connected outside of school they had these tea parties that they did together they knew each other from the academic bowl team but they had this understanding that they didn't speak to each other at school and later that expanded to all of the souls but in the same way that I felt like Julian's dad had this pressure to make everything okay and like explain everything to Mrs. Alinsky I felt like Julian was like on his own for the most part to deal with this bullying and he had to make it okay for like all the adults and even for the kids that were supposed to be his friends as if like oh no like he's so smart and so strong and has been through so much that like he'll be fine he can figure it out and I would have loved for there to be a few more moments of I don't know people having his back yeah, and I think uh, bringing up Ethan is is right here because Ethan and Julian sort of have this close friendship sort of even among the four souls. And Ethan is a little bit of a coward when it comes to standing up for his friend. And Julian, you know, we, we hear Mr. Singh say, Julian's told me many stories. That moment wasn't earned because sort of what happens to him is brushed over in such a way. And sort of the same way the bullying theoretically washes off his back. The death of his mother, which is a more significant trauma than any of the other kids have gone through, that washes off his back. And it's sort of like Julian as a character is just expected to sort of be fine dealing with these much more significant traumas than any of the other kids are having to deal with, which is just, again, it feels feels unfair. What did you think about Ethan generally? I thought he was a really interesting character. I had so many questions about him that I feel like were left unanswered. And I, I, I couldn't help but wonder if in a book written closer to 2020, he would have been explored in a different way because he was bending a lot of norms that I think readers were very used to consuming in 1996, but the author wasn't putting too fine a point on it. But I was very curious about him. And at first I thought he was a little boring, but the way his story unfolded was very nuanced and complex. Yeah, and Ethan's the character I actually related to the most I want to say after Noah, and now as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, no, maybe I've, I related even more to Ethan, although I wasn't silent uh, as a kid and never have been at any point in my life, really. <laughs> um, but uh, the fact that he was so drawn to theater and very creative, but that wasn't the expectation of what he would do with his life. Like that was very, that was a narrative that I very much lived out as a kid. And now ha, 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 I'm a writer. No one, no one stopped me. <laughs> um, live your dreams kids. So there was a lot that I loved about Ethan. And I think sort of, you know, what you're, you're alluding to is, you know, I think Ethan's probably gay and probably feeling pretty insecure about who he is and feeling like he can't, you know, he's living in the very large shadow of his perfect older brother and no one's interested in who he is as a person. And even if they were, he would be afraid to say who he was as a person. And so he becomes, he sort of the most observant of all these observing characters, right? Um, and and really in need of, and Julian does this really beautiful thing in drawing him out of his shell and sort of, man, I wish Ethan had returned the favor. I wish, I wish Ethan had sort of fought for Julian in the way that, that Julian, you know, and what Julian does for all the kids in terms of He's the one who invites them for tea in the first place. He's the one who creates this whole sort of beautiful group that allows all of them to to grow so much. And he's the one who deals with it when, you know, Hamilton tries to poison poor Ginger the dog. Julian's the one who fixes that. And it's just like, he's this like hero character running around fixing everybody's life. And I'm like, who's standing up for Julian? The thing with the dog was so, the, I, I have to say, it was so fucked up. Like, 
He, it was a spite poisoning of a dog so that another dog could appear on stage. It was so messy. I hated that. But yes, I think Ethan owed a lot more to Julian than he was recognizing of his of his visits to Julian's house. He says, something in Stillington House gave me permission to do things I had never done before, never even thought of doing. Something there triggered the unfolding of those parts that had been incubating. That's a huge deal. Like, that's a major moment in your life. And to be to be pinning that to the house and not to the person that really brought that out of you makes me sad. Like, I feel like he, he and maybe it's because he was uncomfortable with the way he was feeling about his relationship with Julian, but I think he really was like, oh, it's the house. It's this house makes me feel special. He, he decides one day that he's going to walk home from the house instead of driving because he feels like this house and the distance between his house and Julian's house, like that symbolizes something. And to me, I'm like, no, it's your relationship with Julian, whatever the nature of it is, that's what really means something to you. And that's what's really brought something different out of your soul. Yeah, I was just looking for, and I couldn't find it, but maybe you have it, this beautiful line in Nadia's chapter where she's talking about uh, the dog Ginger, and she says, oh, yes, she's talking about, like, how all the dog's wonderful qualities. And she says, for example, when we got back to the apartment after Phantom of the Opera, she greeted me as if I were the best friend she had ever had. Inside me, there was a lot of best friendship that no one but Ginger was using. And that line, oh my God, it hit me so, I had to put down the book. I got very emotional. (laughs) It hit me so in the gut of this idea that there is love and friendship and and kindness inside of you and, and no one is interested in receiving those things. And that's very, that spoke, very deeply to how I felt as as a kid who was often uh, viewed as too annoying to have. As a Noah, <laughs> perhaps. Friends. Yeah, just a little bit. A little, a little bit, bit of a Noah, Ethan. Yeah, a little, a little of all that was happening. And I think, you know, that line to me is so the core of the book and that these kids, by coming together, are giving each other opportunities to show each other the best parts of themselves and, and to sort of give each other that kindness and that friendship. And... The idea that they feel like it's something they have to keep secret, like it's something separate from the sort of spiteful and malicious world of sixth grade. I understand that, right? That sort of, that rings true to a lot of what, you know, elementary and middle school bullying and being a nerdy kid, what what that's like. And I guess, you know, I guess that's what we're supposed to take from their sort of meteoric rise at the end, that they are valued. But they're valued for this external achievement. And I would have loved if there was some way in which this this secret friendship that had so much meaning to them privately could have become more a part of their their public life, not, you know, on the news, but just at school. Yeah. On the whole, how did this book compare to your expectations for it? I know you didn't read it when you were a kid, so we can't compare it to your original reading experience, but you are a big fan of the author, and I know you came into The View from Saturday excited to see what this book was all about. How does the reality of it compare? I'll say that as a writer, there's just nothing I love more than just really great writing. And for all the troubles and and disagreements I may have about certain components of the book that I think should have been approached differently, it is outstanding writing. It is so good. Um, And to see such beautifully drawn characters, such specifically drawn characters, and and an ensemble story told in particular so well, um, you know, it's just a joy. It's a total joy to be able to read. And I think that you know, we can hold the joy of that experience and the disappointment that maybe, you know, not all kids are able to experience that joy in the same way because this is written in a way that's a lot more accessible for white kids than non-white kids, right? Like, I think we can hold both those things uh, in our hands at the same time. Um, but but as far as the writing, it was it was just a pure joy. Well, holding both things is really what SSR is all about. So that's, that was a great way to capture <laughs> my experience of reading it as well. Um, and I, I would say that captures what it's felt like 
like to read a lot of these books as an adult. Other than The View from Saturday, what have you been reading lately that you've really been enjoying and would recommend to our listeners? I've been reading a lot of rom-coms this summer because it's been a little bit of a heavy summer. So I've been creating some lighter fare. So I read um, Party of Two by Jasmine Guillory, who's an author and a human who I just love. She's been incredibly supportive of me. Her blurb is on the cover of my book. And Party of Two is a rom-com that takes place in the world of politics. So I just felt like she wrote it specifically for me. It's about a senator who dates a lawyer in Los Angeles. And to me, it felt like an update on one of my favorite movies, The American President, but in a sort of like a 2020 anti-racist, like really woke, interesting take on that kind of a story. So I loved that. And right now I'm in the middle of Get a Life, Chloe Brown by Talia Hibbert, who again is just like, there's some writers who you just read their sentences and I'm just like mad because they're so good. (laughs) It's just like, oh, how dare you? How dare you make this look effortless? It would take me several drafts to to write a sentence of this caliber. So I've really, and that one's uh, very steamy too, which uh, for a person who's been isolating alone for the last five to six months, it's really, it's it's fun to remember like, oh, romance, a thing people enjoyed at one time. It's out Um, there. (laughs) So so that's been a, a real fun one as well. Well, I will include links to both of those books in the show notes for this episode. Party of Two is my favorite of Jasmine Guillory's books, I think. I love all of her books, but I think Party of Two is my new favorite. I read through it in like three days and then I was really sad when it was over and I just became obsessed with like trying to picture the characters. I thought it was great. I love her so much and that was a wonderful summer read. Highly recommend that. I also, of course, highly recommend Kate's book, One to Watch, which will also be included in the show notes for this episode. Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to read this book with me and to discuss it and to have such a well-rounded conversation. It was so nice chatting with you. Oh my gosh, this is such a pleasure. What a what a fun way to spend a holiday weekend. Yeah, good way to wrap up Labor Day. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.